Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and this week we're featuring a session from All About Women in early March 2021. Hello. Oh, it's so lovely to see you. All spaced out, all being COVID safe and masks on. Good for you, good, good. Um, so, welcome to All About Women at the Joan Sutherland Theatre at the Sydney Opera House. My name is Fauzia Ibrahim, if you don't know me. I'm a journalist with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It is lovely to be here. I've always loved being part of the All About Women event. Now, I have to admit that when I first prepared for this uh, event, and I'm very excited to be talking to Koa about it. I wrote this very verbose, wonderful introduction um, about where feminism was going, what it means, where it should be going, and and how we as a collective can do more about it. Um, But I've decided to throw that out the window because it's been a very exhausting month. I don't know about you, I don't know if you've been following the news, but I think for many women, it's been a very exhausting month. Um, Particularly women who've been victims of sexual assault, domestic abuse, um, any sort of assault, and you feel that your voice may have been taken away or silenced. You feel you may not have been heard. It would have been very exhausting, very frustrating, very scary. Uh, And I sort of feel we need to acknowledge that as a nation, that we are hurting as a nation. It's a nation of women, uh, as a sisterhood. But I also feel, having spoken to many women and interviewed many more women and spoken to my friends, my sister, my um, peers as well, I feel that it's not just all despair. I feel there's a change. I feel... Something is in the air. It is changing. Our voices are getting heard. It's getting louder. We are getting through. But this is the time where perhaps we as a collective, as women, can come together and make our voices broader, shall we say, more inclusive, shall we say, more equal, sort of reach across the different aisles that we find ourselves in. Um, And this is where I feel Koa Beck's book really comes in. The title, I know, is a little bit provocative, um, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But joining this collective movement as women is more than just pressing that like button on social media or wearing your The Future is Female t-shirt. Um, It's a lot more than that. It's bigger than that. It's more inclusive than that. It really means we need to get out of our comfort zone as well. And this is where, as I mentioned, Koa Beck's white feminism book really comes in. And I feel that Koa's um, senior roles at Marie Claire, at Vogue, and Jezebel as well um, meant that she was in prime position to watch this rise of the fourth feminine wave. And she also noted the commodification of this movement. I mentioned the future as female T-shirts, social media. It's a lot more than that. Now, 
This book charts the rise of feminism from suffragettes to uh, modern-day influences. You have to keep in mind that Coa's focus may be more American because that is the experience that she is speaking from. However, there is a lot that we as Australian women can learn from, can relate to and do much better, particularly, as I mentioned a little earlier, at this juncture in time in Australia. So without further ado, please make welcome Coa Beck. Lovely to see your sweet, sweet face, Koa. <laughs> thank you, Fauzia, and thank you to All About Women for inviting me to this very illustrious festival. I wish I could be with all of you in person, so maybe next year. <laughs> we'll definitely we'll see you next year. We'll keep you to that as well. Koa, let's talk <laughs> about the title first. Now, when I first was given your book, White Feminism, I have to say the title, I found it very provocative. Um, I found it, oh, why white? What, what is it? But then it intrigued me so much that I actually, I read through it and I realized it's not so much a race issue that you're talking about. It's more capitalism. It's the commodification of feminism. So, so explain the color issue. Happily. Um, so I uh, very intentionally decided to frame this book and this history and this concept around uh, the term white feminism. Having said that, I chose to thread through a lot of um, what in my country, you know, has been in some cases described as white feminism, has also been shorthanded as corporate feminism. Um, some uh, feminist thinkers that I really look up to say bourgeois feminism, other people say girl boss feminism. Um, but the reason I really wanted to um, analyze a, a lot of this rhetoric and narrative of women's rights as one, as one overarching white feminism, is that what binds them together is this aspiration to whiteness. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily equal rights, you know, because you are, say, like a domestic worker or a low-income woman or, you know, a low-income trans woman. Um, what the rhetoric of a lot of the feminism that I am tracing and that is considered like the default feminism in my country is that you aspire to essentially white privilege. You're not necessarily working towards equal rights for everybody. So what I mean when I say that is that you may very well be, you know, a low income, say like immigrant woman um, in my country as well as yours. Um, but white feminism asks that, you know, if you want, say, like a decent working wage, you know, as said, low income women um, in the United States, there's been a lot of back and forth in my country about the $15 minimum wage, for instance, it's not happening. Um, then in order to, you know, achieve that, uh, white feminism overlooks you. White feminism asks that you not, you know, mobilize, say, for like a minimum wage. It asks that you aspire to be a business leader or like, you know, the head of a very lofty corporation or very senior or very influential um, or a business owner um, in order to be seen in white feminism. So that is the distinction. Is there something wrong then to try to aspire to this, as you say, white privilege? I mean, if a lot of women do want to get ahead financially, they want equal pay, you know, they, they want a better position, 
So is there something wrong in wanting to aspire to this? I only think there's something wrong with it if that is the threshold for your feminist consciousness and therefore your feminist organizing. Mm. Um, a lot of these, you know, hypothetical women that I'm citing, and there's more granular data about them in my book, um, they are looking for a structural reality change as well they should. And the threshold by which, you know, you say you do want to aspire to say, like, start your own business or, um, you know, get to the head of a very prestigious company or have like a very senior role. There are a lot of women and non-binary people in my country, and I'm sure yours as well, that need feminism and do contribute a lot to this movement, but don't necessarily want those roles. Again, they're looking for more of a basic standard of living. Mm. And so I don't think it comes down to necessarily being good or bad. It's just that if feminism is being defined solely as this very like lean in sort of rhetoric, mm. that is going to overlook many, many women and other marginalized genders that have contributed greatly to feminism and still do. Um, but again, you know, they don't have these middle class goals. Talk to us about the roots of where this actually comes from. And you cover this in your book uh, yourself. You, you know, you take us back to the roots of feminism, suffragettes who wanted the same freedoms as their fathers, their uncles, their brothers. They wanted the same sort of privilege that men had, but all at the expense of marginalized groups. Yeah, very much so. Um, as you said, I trace white feminism as an ideology and a practice to the beginning of what historians in my country call the modern suffrage movement. So after the turn of the century, um, you know, the uh, sort of character we think of as like the white women with the bobs who like protested and, you know, were force fed. Um, and when those particular women of that generation got together and were starting to mobilize for the right to vote, um, specifically the middle to upper class white women set about a strategy that I find still continues very much today when we're talking about, you know, the woman you're supposed to be thinking of when you think of women's rights in that these particular white suffragists from very comfortable middle-class backgrounds, um, they designed in-house this very homogenized interpretation of who a suffragist was. And their intentions on this were pretty smart in the sense that they were battling, you know, these very sexist uh, understandings of the time and that still play out today, especially if you're a woman on Twitter, <laughs> in that, you know, women who spoke publicly before crowds who had opinions, who perhaps didn't have opinions that their husbands had or their fathers had. These were deviant women. Mm. And so, again, these particular suffragists decided that the way to get out ahead of that was to design in-house who the suffragist was and then export her everywhere. Mm. Now, the place, once again, that, you know, essentially erased the many other women who were also lobbying for the right to vote, and this includes, you know, in my country, Native women. Um, there were Native suffragists, there were Black suffragists, there were Latina suffragists. And yet, archivally, when you look at promotional materials from that time period, from many suffrage organizations, mm. the suffragist is very white, she is thin, she is middle class or aspiring to be. She's able-bodied. She is definitely heterosexual. She aspires to be a wife and mother. Um, and she is everywhere. She is all over, you know, many of the campaign materials. Um, and then another place that effectively, you know, erased 
women of color from this movement and message to them that, you know, again, they were not welcome in this endeavor um, was that these middle to upper class white suffragists partnered with consumerism and power to export, again, the politics of suffrage. So, you know, Macy's, for instance, was deemed the headquarters for suffrage, which is very curious. Um, and, you know, much like now, how we have all these sort of like girl boss desk mugs and, you know, feminist AF t-shirts. And I heard you say earlier, you know, the future is female paraphernalia. Um, that's not new. Uh, that is an enduring white feminist strategy in that you are asked to purchase your politics and the way that you engage in feminist politics is through buying, you know, whether it's like a tote bag or like in my country, we have, um, at one point we had Elizabeth Arden March on lipstick, um, very bizarre, but again, not new. Um, <laughs> the middle to upper class white suffragists essentially did the same thing. They had votes for women buttons and hats, and there was an official like suffrage blouse that you were encouraged by. So it's a very, uh, white feminist interpretation of politics. Okay, so so that's how it all started. Why do you think it's endured for this long? Why do you think white feminists, shall we call them, um, still push for gender equality, equality rather than a broader sort of scope? I think that one of the reasons, the key reasons that white feminism has endured, again, as a practice and an ideology, is that it it doesn't demand that institutions or powerful bodies change very much. Um, a lot of the strategies that have been put forth by white feminists, you know, whether we're talking about now or even 100 years ago, is crafting this very specific skill set that then, you know, is exported to women of all different backgrounds, of different races, of different orientations, to basically excel in the system as is. So if you think of, like, in my book... Um, especially given, you know, my work experience, I cite a lot of, you know, white collar, like career advice that is very framed as, you know, feminist or feminist in tone or feminist in headline. Um, and yet, you know, a lot of this material that is being put in front of women to get ahead professionally is very singularly focused. You're not asked or encouraged to think about the structure of your company in a way in which it might oppress or discriminate against women. And that's really an enduring um, facet. And I think that's another reason why companies to a very large extent, have been very keen to get on board with white feminism, mm. whether we're talking about Macy's 100 years ago or, like, in my country, you know, a, a hypothetical, like, Chase Bank or, you know, some big corporation, mm. um, where, again, you know, these aren't women who are, say, unionizing. These aren't women who are challenging the structural power. Um, they're trying to ascend within the current framework. On that point, in terms of structure, in terms of the corporate world, shall we say, I want to read you out these questions that just come in. Um, this, is from, um, this is from Anonymous, who says, I am responsible for the people strategy in my company. How do I approach issues such as representation and equality without having a, quote, white feminist focus? 
I would advise uh, two things straight off the bat. So something that I have done um, in my more senior roles is that I have changed a lot of job descriptions mm -hmm. so that they are, you know, inclusive of people who don't necessarily have lofty backgrounds, who haven't had the opportunity to secure, in some cases, what I think is an arbitrary number of years of experience, um, who don't necessarily have recommendations from, like, the most elite uh, places. I think... Um, a uh, narrative that I've often been witness to in my career, and it sounds like this person, you know, probably has as well, is that, you know, you're in these highly corporate sometimes settings where people say, we want more, you know, black women in leadership. We want more like queer women as heads of this department. And yet the parameters by which you are supposed to hire are basically the same. <laughs> yeah. And yet if we're talking about having, you know, women over 50 work in this workplace, if we're talking about having, you know, women from uh, lower middle class to like working class backgrounds, their resumes aren't going to look like the middle to upper class women who are white, who you're probably hiring on the regular. Mm -hmm. So for instance, something I've done is like, I've, you know, struck college education. Um, I've spent a lot of years in digital media and it's such a fast paced uh, in some ways, like scrappy environment. And so sometimes, you know, people having eight to 10 years at a very elite publication, that's kind of arbitrary. That's not really mm. necessary. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, that has caused tension in places that I have worked in terms of like, that is the standard, right? For who can work there. And yet, you know, I often take the talking point of like, and that's why your entire department is white. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Well, it's homogenous, isn't it? That's, that's the thing. It's bland mm -hmm. vanilla. Um, I want to talk about, you know, you mentioned more black women in leadership positions. And earlier this year, January 8th, um, sorry, January 20th, we saw uh, Kamala Harris being sworn in as the first non-white uh, the first female vice president of the United States. And I think a lot of non-white and women as well applauded this right around the world. Um, she's highly accomplished in her career. She's a mother. Uh, she's a wife. Would you say that Harris has subscribed to white feminism to get to where she is? I don't know. I, I, that's unclear to me, at least, from where I currently sit. Having said that, um, I am very interested to see, you know, what she and her colleagues will accomplish, you know, in her tenure in the White House. Um, some, uh, a question that I keep getting in the United States, especially as I um, promote this book and this, you know, increased literacy over, uh, you know, racial literacy in feminism is this sort of expectation for Kamala in terms of, you know, don't you think Kamala will accomplish so much. Mm -hmm. And I really um, exercise a lot of caution there just because a point that I make in my book, especially when we're talking about like structural power, institutions, powerful bodies that oppress people, it's going to take a lot more than one person. Mm -hmm. Even somebody as accomplished as Kamala, who has all her accolades and background and is clearly a force to be reckoned with, Kamala and other people like her will move into a constellation of power. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about, you know, hiring 
you know, one amazing woman of color to optically change either, you know, an administration or a company or a university. Um, that's really a stunted uh, observation of like power and also what we're up against when we move into these spaces. Because one person will not accomplish entire structural changes. It will yeah. take a lot of people, yeah. um, including the very powerful people who hired this person. Um, and an unfortunate place where I feel like this can kind of go astray is that, you know, sometimes people are hired and put in places to remain, you know, sort of like optical presences of diversity. And a thinker that I'm sure you are all very familiar with in your country, who I cite on that is Sarah Ahmed. Um, mm -hmm. She has written uh, about this concept of institutional polishing, which I cite in my book in terms of, you know, you're hired um, because, you know, in some instances you are Latina, you have a different quote unquote non-white, you know, perspective, mm. you are openly queer, you are a single mother. And yet when you get there and you try and make changes so that other people like you can move into this um, powerful body, work in this company, ascend, you are told that, you know, that's not how we do things. Um, that's not why you're here. You actually are in a position in which you are too good at your job. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I think that a better way to think about Kamala as we look ahead at what she could do is that I hope that she is able to work with other people who hear her out on some of the changes that she wants to make. And to that effect, I hope Kamala, you know, moves left on some things. Um, we haven't heard her say, you know, anything in support of, say, like, defund the police, you mm -hmm. know, in, in my country. And a number of women of color are waiting. Yeah. Yeah, it's still early days yet, so we'll have to wait and see what Kamala act actually does. I want to write, uh, read out another question that's come in um, from Sasha, who says, white feminism definitely exists in Sydney. I think white feminism exists everywhere. Um, where women and people of minority genders of color have been excluded. So what should white feminists do to be more inclusive? I think a few things. Um, one thing that I think is a good place to start is that when I, you know, sat down to research this book and then to properly write it, um, a thread I found through history and that, you know, I heard very distinctly echo back to me when I was thinking about, you know, women I've profiled, women I've worked with, um, you know, women who I've interviewed who I definitely think subscribe to a white feminist ideology is that they start a lot of their feminist consciousness from a very individualized place. And, and that is a hallmark of white feminism. You know, what you need as a woman in your workplace, in your home, in your family, in your neighborhood, but your feminism begins and ends with you. Mm. And uh, a big distinguishing factor between, say, like white feminist practices and those of, you know, indigenous people, of queer people, of working class people, of disabled people, has been that they think collectively. Um, they don't think about necessarily, you know, solely what they need in terms of what skill set can I affect mm -hmm. so that I can personally overcome patriarchy. Um, these movements that do not follow a white feminist ideology, they think about what everybody needs. And that is reflected in terms of the protesting that they do, the unions they form, the walkouts that they do, you know, um, for either like overpriced materials or in contemporary examples, um, sexual harassment. Um, so I think that 
coming to your feminism from a place of not just what you need, but what the women around you mm. need and non-binary people, that's a good place to start. And also to um, start your feminism and gender awareness from, again, a place of basic need. Mm. Um, I've, I've said this before on book tour, but I think it bears repeating, especially given some of the questions that I've got. In, in my own career, um, a pattern that I've seen play out again and again is that, you know, I will be, say, invited to a festival or a panel or, you know, a conference. And, you know, the agenda is set, the topics are put together. And then at like the 11th hour, uh, you know, one of the planners who I'm in touch with is like, oh, wait a minute, like, we're not intersectional. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, one trans woman is invited <laughs> to the otherwise, like, entirely straight, uh, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle class, you know, sort of, like, gathering. Um, and, you know, my remedy for that is, like, if you just start at a place of basic need, so if you come to feminism with, you know, a consciousness around like obtaining food security, um, affordable housing, access to clean water, mm -hmm. then you don't have to reverse engineer at the end about like, oh, are we intersectional? <laughs> Did we invite, you know, a one woman of color to otherwise like inoculate us against uh, accusations of racism? And that is a big um, differentiating factor in that, you know, white feminism of now and 100 years ago, it, it, assumes that everybody does have a, a, a standard of basic living, which is yeah. why it often starts at like lofty educational opportunities and then like small business and enterprise. Mm -hmm. And yet for most marginalized genders, I would argue in the world, you know, they don't necessarily want to be this like powerful leader. They literally just want an affordable place to live. They want access to healthcare. Um, they want, you know, criminal justice reform. So I think a good control is both, you know, removing your individual needs from feminist conversations. And then again, starting with basic need. That's where I find it really interesting where, you know, if we're moving this conversation from white feminism, shall we say, and the uh, progress of women and talking about gender equality and moving it to basic needs and basic rights, uh, rights to education, rights to healthcare, rights to um, safe housing, shall we say, then where does feminism actually fall into this? Why not just call it human rights? Because isn't, isn't that just basic needs for everybody? Some people would argue that that's what feminism has always been. Hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Koa, I, I feel compelled that I need to ask this particular question because it speaks to my heart because I, uh, and whoever asked it, thank you very much because as a, as a woman of color and as a woman, I'm feeling this um, almost every day. So Koa, the question is, do you have advice for women of color who are ascending through their careers and want to use that position for good? I feel both imposter syndrome and guilt. Uh, and this is something I think as a woman, an educated woman who's in a position uh, and a woman of color, um, I feel that every day. Um, so what advice would you give to us? 
I appreciate that question too for a lot of reasons you raised and to that person who asked. I have felt that as well um, in a number of roles that I've had, especially in, in terms of going up against, you know, protocol in terms of like, this is just how, you know, things are. Um, and I'm, you know, it's just supposed to accept it or, you know, replicate it. Um, I would say, you know, depending on where you work and again, like what is available to you, try and disrupt and challenge these structures where you are. And, and the thing is like, this may play in some ways, you know, to the guilt you feel in the imposter syndrome and that you may not feel necessarily empowered to make these changes. Um, I know, you know, in my own career, that has been something that I've really taken inward um, in terms of, you know, again, this system and avenue and path was sanctioned in some ways by, you know, white supremacy and by patriarchy. And yet, you know, you as the woman of color who they've, you know, so very graciously let sit at the table <laughs> and make decisions, um, you, <laughs> you um, are, you know, wary of rocking the boat. And I think that's a very real sentiment. Mm -hmm. I would say, um, especially if, you know, your organization is overwhelmingly white, um, I would, first of all, I would try and see if there is some uh, unionization or type of like, you know, policy group you can form within your organization um, so that it's not just you. And that has helped me in my career towards the latter end. I did work with a, with a union and it was um, a lot more, I would say, empowering in the sense that, you know, when I was told to my face to, you know, exploit my staff or to, you know, basically have like a new mother come to work or come back to work earlier than, you know, I would definitely deem appropriate. It was great for me to say, you know, okay, I'm going to talk to the union and I'll be right back. <laughs> um, so I would encourage you to think in numbers, but also depending on how um, senior you are, and I do get into this in my book, um, there is a lot you can get away with, you know, under the terms like subject to manager approval, if you are that high up. So in roles that I have had, um, you know, certain things are just, again, you know, subject to my approval, because that's how senior I was. Mm -hmm. And so in places where I deemed like the company policies to be, you know, very discriminatory towards mothers, um, very, in some ways, like classist in terms of, you know, who we hired, um, I would basically use my seniority and what capacity that I could to just say that it's, you know, it's handled. So if it's, if it's subject to my approval, um, and, you know, a, a woman on my team has just had a baby and, you know, we don't have a lot of the paid parental leave that you all have. Um, ours is very, very abysmal, but, you know, if I have decided as her manager that she can work from home while tending to her newborn, um, then that's subject to manager approval. Mm -hmm. And as long as, you know, the metrics bear out in the way that they do, um, in, in a way that's like satisfactory to the company, then what do they care? You know, what managerial tactics, you know, I'm putting in place. And again, like, I think you should always think about these kinds of roles in terms of policies you can put in place for people that you will never meet, um, especially because as you get more senior, you will be removed from the most junior entry level people who probably need, you know, someone with your consciousness and, and awareness for policy the most. And yet how a lot of this corporate structure works is that you will be taken away from them. Mm. So I would advocate to put in policy what you can, and then what you can't, you just deal with internally and don't tell your boss. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Koa, just on the point of that phrase, the future is female, 
Um, you argue that it can't be, it shouldn't be, because of the rise in awareness of gender fluidity. Talk to us about that. Sure. So um, I, you know, being in a lot of the mainstream publications that I have been in the newsrooms, um, I was very aware of, you know, when the future as female started to ascend. Uh, and I get into my book, you know, the history of actually where that phrasing comes from. It's actually a deeply radical lesbian um, slogan. And then, you know, how it ended up like on a T-shirt that like a very, you know, famous person would wear or, you know, that you could buy at a department store. Um, when I think about, you know, broadly what marginalized genders need in terms, again, of like basic need of, you know, access to clean water, healthcare, um, I look ahead and that future is not solidly female to me. That is a gender fluid future. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, I have watched in my lifetime the future is female, which again started out as a very radical saying, be sanitized of a lot of its original meaning, commodified and sold in the way that, you know, white feminism does a lot of things, but also really grossly to affirm a gender binary um, in that, you know, anything remotely positive that, you know, someone who identifies as a woman does it develops this sort of like catch-all phrasing that doesn't really mean anything. Um, and it's a very, uh, I make reference in my book to um, what I call the cul-de-sac of white feminism mm -hmm. in that you come in and out the, the same sort of way. You know, you go through the motions of some sort of like gender awareness, but nothing is really exercised or challenged. Yeah. And I feel like um, the future is female is another one of those where it like, it can sound very satiating. It can sound very empowering. And yet, what does it even mean? I don't even know what it means anymore. And I wrote a book analyzing it. <laughs> it's, it just sort of, um, I think speaks to like this weirdly opaque, like feminist utopia, you know, where everybody like yeah. makes a lot of money and like, you know, wears the clothes that they want, I think. Um, and yeah, then, you it, know, like it, does well in business <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. Chapter 11, you do talk about it. Uh, you talk about the branding and the commercialization of, of feminism and, and, and you say sanitizing empowerment away from radical, deeply historic activism was pivotal for fourth wave white feminism because it had to become transactional, something you could buy, obtain, and experience as a product rather than an, a uh, feeling that rushed in from challenging power. Um, we've seen the T-shirt, we've pressed the like button, but that's not enough. No, and, and I will add, though, that, you know, I think that... Um organizing on platforms like Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook, and I'm sure, you know, the many others that are coming, I think that is a very legitimate form of uh, organizing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when I, you know, researched this book and went back to look at, you know, how women and marginalized genders organized against all sorts of oppressive uh, structures and also ideologies, the practices were the same. Like you said something publicly that you were afraid to say because of the personal attacks on you and challenges, and yet you found other people who it had also happened to and who were willing to speak up with you and therefore challenge power. So that, I think the digital component of this, I'm, I'm not one of those people who's like super hand-wringing about social media or thinks that like it's uniformly terrible. I think there's a lot of nuance with social media and I feel like feminism broadly is exactly that space. I mean, in my country, Black Lives Matter has achieved so much through, again, like hashtagging this movement. Mm. Um, 
But, you know, getting back to your earlier question, I think what's ultimately concerning about the future is, is female, um, is that what that is messaging to me is that feminist uh, gains, feminist uh, uh, legislation, feminist policies will create a utopia for people who identify as women. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we're very aware now through a lot of different histories, through a lot of different increased awareness around rights, that women are not the only marginalized gender. Mm -hmm. You know, Chloe, so far we've talked about what white feminism is, and it is individualistic, it is commercialized. What is a good example then that you would say is a good feminist movement that is from the ground up, that actually looks beyond the gender equality issue? I would say the very long history of consumer activism in my country, which I get into in the book in great detail, um, in that you have, you know, generations of women, mostly women of color, although not exclusively, who have worked across class to and and race to that to that point um, to effectively challenge, you know, the price of meat. Um, it started in my country, you know, a little over a hundred years ago, where essentially. Um, some Jewish housewives uh, got together and challenged the price of meat, not because it was raised to, you know, give better wages to the workers <laughs> or, you know, give them like better health care access. It was literally just like a, a tax. And uh, these women, you know, could not afford it. Um, and it was outrageous to them that meat would go up that amount. And so they got together and decided to not buy it. They boycotted it. And these efforts um, continued about every generation or so. I, I track that through like in the 30s and 40s, um, more women throughout the country had telephones in their house. So meat would grow, go up an arbitrary amount, again, not for the workers. Mm. And these women who were tasked with, you know, doing all this domestic labor, making sure their children were fed, literally their families could not afford this meat. And so they would, you know, tear out pages of the phone book and assign them to different women. And they would call, you know, across states. And it worked. Um, and it continued to work through the 70s in my country. And it's a very... Um, it's a piece of women's history that I wasn't, you know, all that familiar with before I started the book. And I think there's a lot of reasoning behind that, you know, why in my education I was not told about these, these women specifically because they, they are black and brown. Um, they are working class. Um, and again, you know, they're not trying to be Sheryl Sandberg. Mm. They're just trying to get a fair price meet for their children and for their families and for themselves as well. Um, and the thing that I, an, another aspect that I really value about that movement is again, women across race and class worked together to achieve this end. Koa, I wanna come back to um, some questions here and, and we've got a few where there's a common thread and, I'm, and the common thread I can feel here is that I think um, some people are taking offense to the white part of the white feminists um, one of the questions we're going to read out to you is, how do you address the response to criticism of the concept that white feminism, that is similar to the not all men trope, so instead, not all white women? In my book, I uh, took great measures to go into the history in my country of anti-racist white women in the South. Mm. 
Um, and these were women who, you know, were white. Um, many of them were born into middle-class privilege. And yet, you know, from the ground up, used a, a very intentional racial literacy in their understanding of gender. Um, so I think that, you know, this isn't new. I've gotten this before. Um, unfortunately, it's from people who haven't read the book, which I think is telling. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think if, if, if you have a lot of sensitivity about hearing a term like white feminism, I would argue that my book is definitely for you. <laughs> Another question here. Um, there's a lot of talk um, recently, Koa, um, just in the last few weeks or so about consent um, sexual consent, any sort of consent, and particularly amongst schoolgirls, schoolboys, what is all right, what is not all right, um, the rights of women, and how we can impress that on young boys as well. So the question here is, how can we promote more inclusive feminism in schools and educational environments? I, um, I think a place I can answer this, you know, from my own country, and I'm... I'm not as fluent, you know, in your educational system, so I think it makes it somewhat, um, I, I hesitate to be very prescriptive in speaking about your nation, but in my own country, uh, a conversation that I find myself returning to again and again with myself and then, you know, sometimes other women that I've worked with is that, you know, if you look, you know, at, at a movement like Me Too, for instance, and you have, you know, so many people who have been victimized um, either by partners or, you know, people who have managed them um, and yet when you trace it back, like we don't have in the United States comprehensive sex education. Mm. And so there's all this talk about, you know, the movies people watch, the sorts of like culture they consume, the music. Um, in, in my country, it backslides into racism pretty quickly um, in terms of like, you know, attacks on say like hip hop music. Um, you know, it, it, it becomes a very racialized conversation very quickly. Yeah. But I think that um, in my own country, a place we have really neglected is again, comprehensive sex education um, in that, you know, we're, we're kind of expecting Expecting these grown-ups who live in a very puritanical society in which, you know, we don't have a lot of clean, direct information about sex to then go into workplaces and then like suddenly be imbued with all this sexual literacy about like consent and then, you know, how to actually approach somebody or, you know, be on dates with somebody who you might work with. Is that inappropriate? And it's like, we didn't even address this when people were growing up. So I don't know how we can expect them to just be adults. Um, and I, and I say that with respect to, you know, people across the gender spectrum. Mm. Um, I mean, a, a lot of sex education in my country has been very fraught and it swings back and forth depending on, you know, who the president is and what they're willing to okay and what they're not willing to okay. But, you know, even when you consider like queer people, you know, and the kind of sex that they have and how like that's not been a part of, you know, my uh, nation's history with sex ed either. So there's like a lot that I think that we're behind on that I think starts with even just like acknowledging sex. <laughs> that it actually happens. Uh, Koa, do you... Yeah, <laughs> outside of marriage. <laughs> do, do you think that this pandemic has perhaps helped 
people or help white feminists or the feminism movement as a whole to sort of rethink its agenda, to be more inclusive, to be a lot broader in their issues and, and their aims as well, given that a lot of marginalized groups have been very much affected by this pandemic, economically and in, in, in the health, health arena as well. I hope so. That that has been um, something that I've held on to since the pandemic has happened in that in my country, especially, um, you know, a lot of mainstream feminist uh, narratives and discourse have been very individualized, especially if we're talking about labor and domestic labor. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of work that, you know, women have been traditionally tasked with, if you look at like white feminist uh, rhetoric, you know, the last you know, 10 years that I've had to cover, um, there's a lot of, you know, really coded language around, say, like outsourcing, you know, which to me, like I hear a word like outsourcing and that really invisibilizes, say, like the low income women who you hire to come into your home and take care of your children or clean your floors or do your laundry or, you know, clean up after you. And yet, you know, that has been the white feminist solution is outsource, hire. And yet, you know, for all these, um, you know, uh, feminist conferences and things that I've had to cover throughout the years and attend, you know, I have never been to like one seminar where I sat down and they said, okay, like how to make sure that your nanny has healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> never happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, how to make sure that, you know, the cleaning woman you hire, um, gets paid time off. Here's how you secure that. You know, never. It's, it's very much about, like, how you get ahead, your own individual success, um, how to negotiate pay, you know, which are very important, but not necessarily defining uh, feminist punctuation, I would argue. So I'm hoping that, especially in my own country, where, you know, we don't have a lot of, like, structural protections in the way that you do, say, around, like, parents, um, I'm hoping that the pandemic has really shaken a lot of women and specifically white feminist understanding of labor and the amount of labor it takes to maintain a home, um, effectively homeschool children if they have any, cook all the food, clean all the floors, make sure the bathroom sinks are clean um, so that we can revisit essentially like what feminist gains have been in this country. Uh I'm going back to the questions here from the audience, and this one, uh, what are your thoughts on minimum quotas for women in corporate leadership positions? Broadly, I will say that uh, I think it's a good idea, but the reason you hear hesitancy in my voice when I vocalize that is, is my next question is, and then to what end? Like, if you have, you know, say, like gender parity on your board, which is a big conversation in my country, then what does that ultimately mean? You know, are we talking about half women who essentially push forward and approve policies mm. that disempower, disenfranchise and exploit other women? Mm. Yeah, that's a good point there. Um, Koa, you close the book by saying white feminists will be the one who decide how long we will keep playing to these historical scripts and when we will stop mytholog... Mytholo I can't even say that word now. Um, that we are all aligned in the same way under the same power. Um, for the mostly white audience who may be 
watching this who may be educated, they're social media savvy, they're relatively economically secure. What do you think they can do to change these scripts? I think the first thing that they can do, and again, I, I say this very intentionally, is to know this history. Um, because, you know, I could sit up here and rattle off, you know, movements I think you should donate to and marches, you know, that you should go to. But unless you know, you know, the history of why, you know, black women, for instance, have not been a part of you know, your subscription of feminism, unless you know why queer women perhaps have chosen to align themselves more with other movements than say mainstream feminism, all of those gestures come off to me as somewhat empty and also a little, um, you know, kind of like homework, like make sure you're a good feminist and you support Black Lives Matter. Like what you ultimately need to do is understand these varied experiences across race and class and orientation. And in my country specifically, I feel like the um, dominant narrative of white feminism has been very successful at taking us away from each other um, in that, you know, white feminism has such very different goals for what gender equality looks like. It has very different strategies that are just not accessible to so many women. Um, and so, again, whether it's, you know, your country, my country, I think understanding where so many women are coming from mm -hmm. rather than being reactionary or, you know, saying that like men are necessarily the problem. Um, I think you need to think again more structurally. And I think history can help you do that. Um, patriarchy is a lot more than just, you know, the man who sits across from you on the bus, right? It's an ideology and it's a practice and it's a thing that shapes a lot of policies. It's a thing that shapes a lot of legislation. Mm -hmm. And you should think about white feminism the same way. Koa, you talk a lot about unionizing or looking for a union and, 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 and trying to move the agenda forward as a collective. Uh, this question from the audience, as a union delegate or organizer, how can we make our unions more inclusive and use them to win gains for those who are not white men or women? Well, if your um, union, you know, from the jump is primarily white, right? That says a lot about either your company, you know, where you work, or, you know, the type of things that you're organizing for. I think, again, you know, much like that analogy I raised earlier about like festivals or conferences or what have you, um, if, you know, you and your union have sat down and put together some, you know, bargaining units or like some, you know, very specific campaigns that you want to support, some policies that you want to push for in-house, and no people of color are either co-signing them or interested in coming to your union meeting, that says a lot. Mm. So I think that, again, much like I said earlier, start at basic need. If you don't have a lot of people of color in your company, why is that? Is it that, you know, you require a certain number of years of experience and therefore they don't apply? Um, is it that, you know, the entry level salary is so egregiously low that, you know, a person from a more working class background, a person from, you know, a more like disadvantaged background can't make that salary work in the way that say like a white person who went to uni and, you know, can be, have their income subsidized by their parents can make that salary work. Like there are structural reasons as to why that is. And when you 
um, are able to address what those basic needs are. Perhaps you can get more people of color in your company and therefore in your union. I find this next question interesting, um, and it's from Anonymous. It, is it realistic to expect people of color uh, to achieve power, like Kamala or Obama, to move further left? This is despite historical evidence that they won't. I'm just going to add here, many of the times they feel pressured that they can't COA because they're actually working within a structure that's already been set up before them. Yeah, I mean, in, in my own, um, you know, very, very minor version of that, nowhere near Kamala, I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think that uh, ascension measures and sort of what often, you know, powerful people say, you know, from um, uh, who are of color, you know, have to play to, to be able to stay in that roles or, you know, to stay in those companies rather, those are very real parameters and cannot, you know, be ignored. Um, having said that, you know, again, I don't necessarily believe in looking towards these specific people to be saddled with making all these changes. A better question that I would ask to this person is that why are we asking people of color to make these structural changes? Where are the white people who are also advocating for these structural changes and perhaps working with these individual people of color? Koa, we both um, work in the media and, and we know what goes into making a story. We know how to pitch a story in order to make it to the front page, to the top of the bulletin. We know, you know, we're talking about the structure that we have to work within. We, we, we know how to make it work, I suppose. Um, but for the audience that may be reading a particular article or watching a particular story, what would you say to watch for? in these articles or in, you know, these reports that promotes white feminism? I have a lot of experience with this. We <laughs> could have like a whole separate breakout in which I break down for you white feminism in media. <laughs> um, Main things to look out for, and I've seen this a lot in my own country and a little bit in the UK as well, and I hope you leave this conference, you know, maybe able to spot check this in your local media. Mm -hmm. um, a big thing is like, you know, you'll see a headline that'll be like, women, TK, TK, TK. That's like internal shorthand for like fill in the blank. Like it actually doesn't even matter what the measure is. <laughs> And then when you actually read the article, and, I, and I'm not saying like the first graph, I'm talking like read the whole thing, you'll realize that women is actually white women. Right. And that'll be reflected in, you know, who they quote, um, who is like cited, and then like maybe they might have like one woman of color down at the end that's like, yeah, I also... <laughs> agree with this or I've experienced this just to like inoculate it against accusations of racism. <laughs> um, so I would look out for just like generalizations because it's been my experience, especially when, you know, I've been assigned say like what my outlet deems feminist coverage or, you know, am going to cover say like feminist uh, gatherings, you know, across a whole spectrum of things, whether we're talking like private conferences or even like marches to some degree. Um, 
when women as is used as like a broad catch-all and yet it's really reflected that like who we're actually talking about is like straight women who are white who come from a middle-class background who went to college <laughs> and that is definitely not all women um and Further on that point, a challenge I had when I was doing the archival research for this book is that when I was going back to reporting that was from, say, like the 60s, you know, during what some people call like the second wave feminist movement in my country, I would see reporting from like the New York Times or the Washington Post. And in a very similar way, it would be like, you know, about some policy that, you know, was maybe going to the Senate or something. And then it would say, feminists reacted by, you know, doing blank. And yet, you know, I keep reading and again, it's like a monolithic term. I'm sitting there, you know, 50 years later thinking like, okay, feminists, who are we talking about? Angela Davis, Gloria Steinem, yeah. Stella. <laughs> like it's, it's, um, it's a problem that greatly, you know, predates contemporary media yeah. and yet reveals a lot about people's like racial literacy or like class literacy. Yeah. Um, it's a great book, Koa. We're just running out of time. I want to give you the last say here. You know, we're talking about the fourth wave feminism. What do you think the fifth wave feminism looks like? Because we're constantly evolving, of course. What do you want it to look like? Well, first of all, um, I don't think it'll be a quote-unquote wave at all. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I address this a little towards the end of my book, um, and uh, accompanying this book, I, I was awarded a fellowship to do the research for this book from the Harvard Kennedy School, and per that, I had to write a um, paper on white feminism that is free to read, it is accessible to anybody, um, and I get into a little more detail about, you know, waves in that, but essentially... You know, wave is a very, um, I think, like reductive way of thinking about feminist movements in that, you know, you're collapsing what is a lot of different movements, approaches, ideologies, ways of thinking about gender into one monolithic narrative. And even like, for instance, you know, the fourth wave, like there's a lot of contention around that term and for good reason. So I think that... Um, Wherever we move from here, I look forward to it not being described as a wave um, and also, you know, being very centralized around structural critique, you know, rather than these individual skill sets that, you know, marginalized genders can adapt um, to, you know, succeed in the patriarchy or succeed in, you know, very systemic racist circumstances. Um, I also hope that feminist conversation, you know, after me, um, doesn't fixate, you know, so much on necessarily the gender binary. And that's changed a lot in my lifetime already. But especially, you know, I'm, I'm a millennial. Um, Gen Z, after me, I'm very excited for their feminism. <laughs> um, because most of them, at least based on polling in my own country, you know, they don't even believe in a gender binary. And yet when I look back on... Uh, so much uh, white feminist organizing in my country, there's been so much debate about, you know, what a woman is, who is a woman, who is not a woman, um, especially, you know, now with you're seeing like a lot of, you know, really outspoken radical feminists come out against trans rights. And, you know, the, that, that, that um, really like biological foundation by which yeah. to understand womanhood still exists. And yet, you know, when I think about like a, a number of queer movements, a number of like indigenous movements that I cite in my book, 
That's not the issue. The issue is the structure that oppresses marginalized genders. And so in some ways, I'm looking forward to feminism. Uh, and again, you know, many movements have done this already that are not white feminist in practice, um, moving towards a spectrum of gender. And then, you know, analyzing the structures that therefore oppress all of these genders. Onward, I say. And I think that's where we all say as well. Koa, it is wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, please, round of applause for Koa Beck, author of White Feminism. You can watch this talk, along with the others recorded at the All About Women Festival, on our video platform called Stream. You'll find the link in our show notes. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.